Well, hey, we're in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 now and sort of kicking off a new little bit of a mini-series around the idea of spiritual gifts. And so uh, as we start this, we're still in 1 Corinthians, going to finish that all the way through. But why don't I pray for us as we start this morning. God, thank you for for your word and that you have spoken to us. And I pray this morning, wherever we're at, whatever questions we walked in with, whatever whatever joys or frustrations on our heart, I pray, pray we could lay them at your throne and hear from you now. God, I pray through your spirit you would use me to speak, to lift high the name of Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Well, what is true spirituality? Now, I realize the second I say the term, probably a lot of us have very different reactions. For some of us, maybe we're, we're a little tired of that word. It seems to me every time I turn on CNN or, or, or check out the New York Times or some article about being spiritual but not religious, right? It's a word that almost doesn't seem to have meaning anymore. Or maybe some of us, we get really nervous that when I, I say spirituality, you're expecting things to get a little weird, right? There might be incense, probably going to have to hold hands, maybe close our eyes, but it's definitely going to be weird. And I don't know what you think when I say the word spirituality, but what, what is true spirituality? But there are a lot of opinions out there, but I think all of those opinions reflect something that that deep inside of us, we all have this longing that that there's more to being human than what you and I can see. That we all long for transcendence. And I think that's what spirituality, no matter what form you try to, to, to use that as, speaks to. But that doesn't mean you long for God. That take Sam Harris, a very hardened atheist who once famously said, theology is ignorance with wings. Yet his latest book that he just released is called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. Now what does it mean to be spiritual without religion? Well, here's what he says as he's introing the book. He says it's it's to assert two important truths simultaneously. One, our world is dangerously riven by religious doctrines that all educated people should condemn. And yet there's more to understanding the human condition than science and secular culture generally admits. Now, Harris thinks religion is a dangerous joke. And yet at the same time says, well, science can't explain everything. There's more to being human than meets the eye. That's why he wrote a book on spirituality, on, on meditation, on solitude. And it's not just him. Take another atheist, a non-Christian named David Reef, who wrote a memoir that gives another picture of, of what it means, for, at least for him, to be spiritual without religion. The, one of the, the high points, or one of the, the most moving parts of his memoir is when he details the, the illness, the suffering, and eventual death of his mother. And even though he's not a believer in God, he has the sense of transcendence through that experience that he can't give words to. Although he tries in his memoir, here's what he says at his mother's death. And so it ended. As her corpse was lowered into the grave and I knelt at the, age of the, the edge of the burial hole, I felt she was still there. Today when I go visit my mother's grave, I don't know what to do besides tidy up a bit. Me tidying up for my mother. Preposterous reversal of roles. But I do not believe she is there or anywhere else, of course. And so I rarely stay long. Yet he keeps going again and again to his mother's grave. And this is how he describes those experiences. And once I've arrived, I stare for a few moments. Then I kneel, kiss the granite slab, and get back up on my feet. And then I go hurriedly, confusedly. It's not just that I have nothing to say. I'm incapable of thought. 
that he's so moved he can't speak. And yet he also says, well, my mom's not there. It's just ground. It's just dirt. It's just a gravestone. And yet he keeps going. And in those moments, he's so moved, he can't speak. He can't think. He knows it's irrational, yet he keeps going. But what is it that makes a hardened atheist who would look at us as complete jokes, and yet he writes an entire book about spirituality? Or what is it that makes an atheist who doesn't believe his mom's anywhere go to her grave continually again and again? It's because we long. Maybe not much of the time, maybe not most of the time, but all of us have this longing. Moments where light maybe seems to be breaking in, that there's more to this experience of being human than what you and I can see, than what meets our eyes. That what is true spirituality? And this morning as we begin sort of four weeks on the idea of spiritual gifts of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, before we jump into those details, which is where a lot of people go to start, Paul, when he begins this conversation, starts much broader, that he has to correct a fundamental mistake the Corinthians in this church in this day were making. And believe it or not, I think it's the same mistake that Sam Harris, that David Reef, that I, maybe you, make when it comes to how we approach spirituality. And so Paul, in these first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 12, will unpack for us, one, why most spirituality fails, two, what true spirituality is, and three, how we can live it. So let's jump in. First, what, why most spirituality fails. That Paul begins in verse 1 that by using probably what was a buzzword, a favorite word of the Corinthians. Here's what he writes. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. And this word spiritual gifts isn't the word Paul typically uses of spiritual gifts. It's actually a broader word. I think he's got a bigger picture in mind than, than just spiritual gifts. That elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, when Paul uses the word, it's, it's translated spiritual person or spiritual things. And I think our word spirituality gets at what Paul is saying here. He's not just talking about spiritual gifts to start. He's saying, Corinthians, you've misunderstood what it means to be of the spirit, what it means to be spiritual, what it means to be a spiritual person. They've misunderstood the use of their gifts because they've misunderstood what spirituality is. And so Paul begins this, these three chapters, really, by laying out what true spirituality is, what, what spirituality should look like in their lives. And Paul thinks they're missing this pretty badly, right? We get that in verse 2, when Paul says, You know when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Right, the verse 1, Paul says, I want, to, I want you to know what spiritual, spirituality is, so you're not ignorant, so you're not uninformed. Because remember your past life when you were led astray to mute idols, and verse 2 is, is where we can begin to see why most spiritualities fail. That you're on your own. Life is really ultimately by yourself. And Paul points out this has two significant problems. At one, you look to an empty God. The verse 2 is kind of a sad verse, isn't it? That he des- describes the Corinthians as led astray to mute idols. That the image that's given there is of people praying and sacrificing and worshiping a statue, which can't speak back, it can't help, it can't offer guidance or advice. Really, that person in that moment is there by themselves. Even though there's a statue and a temple and all that, the reality is that person is there by themselves. And you and I, we may not go to little statues anymore, but we trust things that can't speak back, don't we? Money, 
popularity, sex, power. We trust idols that are mute, that we go and lay our hopes before for them to guide us and bring us life. And they can't say anything. They're dead. They don't exist. We all have trusted things that have no chance of bringing us life. Why? Why do we do that? Well, it leads into the second reason why Paul is pointing out to them, listen, the way you're approaching spirituality, it doesn't work, it fails. And that is, most of us, I think when we think about being led by the Spirit, or just spirituality in general, whether you're a Christian or not, it's, it's you look inward. Right? You look to empty gods, but really what's going on there is you're looking inward. That spirituality is almost completely defined by an individualistic experience. And that's the primary problem Paul is going to speak to in all of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You see, before the Corinthians were Christians and they went to, to the temple with idols to worship, one of the primary experiences that would happen in those temples is this thing called speaking in tongues. And what would happen is it would be this ecstatic experience where the, 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 the worshiper at the temple would begin speaking in a language they, they didn't know, they didn't understand, that was directly to the God. And to most people in that day in Corinth, that was the, the, the prime example. You were spiritual. You were, you were with the gods is when you had these experiences. And so what the Corinthians have done is they've transferred that into the church. And that if you're a Christian, if you're truly, really a Christian, you have to speak in tongues. You have to have this private, individualistic experience. And without it, you're not really a Christian. You're not really full of the Spirit, that their entire success of spirituality is defined down to an inward personal experience. Now, as Paul will later say, the problem isn't that, that they're speaking in tongues. The problem is the way they're looking at speaking in tongues. That to them, it's the greatest proof of a spiritual person. And Paul says that's wrong. That's not the greatest sign of what it means to be spiritual. In fact, that's why most spirituality fails. You're, you're at an idol, you're by yourself, you're individual. And that's the mistake Paul is seeking to correct here. But here's where we have to pause for a minute because I want to I say we have the same problem that they had. Right? In some churches it is still speaking in tongues. In Christ's community it's a little bit different. For us it may not be speaking in tongues, but it's the same problem at the root of how you and I often approach spirituality. That we make it about an inward, personal experience. For example, take the book Eat, Pray, Love, which came out a few years ago. It was a major bestseller. And the gist of the story was, was it. The author of the book, Elizabeth Gilbert, was, was unhappy, was longing, and had this experience with God one night. And what God encouraged her to do was first divorce her husband and move in with a much younger man. And from there, it was to, to travel the world, eat lots of food, try lots of meditative practices. And that's what, that's what her God led her on in, in her quest. And that book connected deeply with the American psyche. It was a bestseller. It became a movie. She was on Oprah all the time. Why? Well, it would be easy for me to dismiss Gilbert's story, to, to sort of point out that her God sounds rather convenient. That God sort of leads her to do what she probably didn't need a God to lead her to do. She probably would have done it anyway. And the truth is, that's what my spirituality looks like much of the time. Where I think I'm being faithful, think I'm being led by the Spirit. But the reality is, I want to do what I want to do. And God's just going to be my justification to go and do that anyway. Where all my spirituality does for me is confirm what I would have done already. 
Because all my spirituality about ultimately is my own personal happiness and joy and experience. And Paul's saying no. It's actually almost the exact opposite of that. And for the Corinthians, their problem, it was speaking in tongues. For us, it's following our hearts. It's seeking to be authentic to our true selves and chasing whatever that is. And Paul's saying, no. My spirituality is not about me and my individual experience. It's primarily about something else. That Paul's laying into them a little bit here. This is why their spirituality fails. Ultimately, they're doing life on their own. And that is why most spirituality doesn't work. It's us trying to do life on our own without God. Right, it's David Reef at his mother's grave by himself trying to find meaning. For me, it may be, be praying and seeking and hoping God will fulfill my ultimate desires. Whatever it is, the focus is on me. It's I'm looking inward. And yet Christianity is abundantly clear. We are not on our own. That's not the way that we're to do life. And I love the way G.K. Chesterton puts this. He's a British author from the early 20th century. He says this, since Christianity came into the world firstly in order to assert with violence that a man had not only to look inward but to look outwards, to behold with astonishment and enthusiasm a divine company and a divine captain. The only fun of being a Christian was that a man was not left alone with the inner light, but definitely recognized the outer lights. Fair as the sun, clear as the moon, terrible as an army with banners." The most spirituality fails because it's following a mute idol. And Christianity begins by acknowledging there's this terrible army with banners that's coming to invade your heart. A divine captain who's going to tell you what to do and what not to do. And his first and foremost hope for your life is not your own personal happiness or fulfillment, but to change you and to mold you into Christ-likeness. So let me ask this morning, do you live like you're on your own? Do you live like the armies invaded your heart, terrible with banners, frightening and all it is? Or do you just live hoping you'll get what you want at the end of the day? That you live your spirituality on your own? Or do you take too much credit for your success and giftedness? That when you succeed, do you find yourself giving thanks to God for his grace and goodness over your life? Or do you find yourself patting yourself on the back? That in your success, do you remember that the greatest gift is not success, but God's presence in your life, regardless of circumstances? Or when you feel alone and abandoned, when trials come, do you feel like God's still with you in those moments? That when you experience rejection, does it send you into soul-crushing depression? Or do you remember in that moment there's someone who will never leave you nor forsake you? Or when you're tempted to sin or do something wrong? And you're caught in the moment of decision. Does God's presence in his Holy Spirit ever factor in? Did you find yourself thinking, oh, no one will ever know? Or did you realize God is present with you in those moments as you make those decisions? Maybe you hear that question and you think, well, that's, that's a reason not to be a Christian. That sounds kind of creepy, right? God's staring over your shoulders, watching every decision you make. But before you dismiss that, Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians that there's really two options on the table for us. Option one is we're on our own. It's mute idols. It's chasing after our own personal experiences. That's option one. Or option two is what Paul will begin to press into. What true spirituality is. And that ultimately you either stand at the grave of your mother alone with nothing there. You as an atheist try to find some practice of spirituality by yourself. Or there's something better. 
something truer, which is where Paul goes next in, in verse 3, what true spirituality is. That to correct the, the, the mistake the Corinthians are making, this person that, that speaking in tongues, this personal encounter of God is, is the highest spiritual account or, or reality you can live into. Paul instead corrects in verse 3 to what he considers to be the most fundamental reality of a spiritual person. Here's what he says. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now what does Paul mean there? Right? It seems a little strange. Right? I mean, it's easy for anyone to just go up and say Jesus is Lord. Right? I mean, what does Paul mean with this? No one says Jesus is accursed, but, but no one can say Jesus is Lord without the Spirit. Well, I think one thing we have to realize is that if I was to go up to someone today, say I had run an errand in Target, and I went up to someone and said, hey, Jesus is Lord, it'd be weird and awkward. They'd probably try to get out of that conversation as quickly as possible. It'd be strange, it'd be weird, all that. But it wouldn't really cost either of us anything, right? It'd be an awkward encounter, and that's the end. But in that day, if you said Jesus is Lord, it could cost you. You could be beaten, imprisoned, seen as a threat to Rome. The Romans in that day were expected to say Caesar is Lord. It was on their coins. It was on their buildings. It was expected of any Roman citizen to say. And that's why Paul's main confession throughout the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. The Christians had a confrontational confession, which means if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is certainly not Lord, and neither am I. Jesus is is Lord, And that's the center of what true spirituality is for you and I as Christians. Is that our lives reflect the confession and the truth that Jesus is Lord. And the Holy Spirit is the one person who enables you to say that and to live it. To back it up. Right, the Holy Spirit confronts the mute idols that I turn to. That by myself, my, my life, my spirituality will chase after what I would chase after. Would go after what I would have gone after anyway. And the Holy Spirit stops me in that moment and diverts me to the beauty, the truth, and the glory of who Jesus is. That's the primary work of the Spirit in our lives. The here and elsewhere, Paul makes this outrageous claim is that for the Christian, God dwells within us. The Holy Spirit. I mean, think about that for a minute. That if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you. But unlike what the world thinks, that doesn't mean you're going to go and you're going to have mountaintop experiences every day of your life. That you're just going to feel great about yourself all of the time. No, but what Paul says is if you have the Spirit, the primary picture and peace and, and proof of that is your life bears the truth that Jesus is Lord. That maybe you'll have some experiences where, where you're on a mountaintop, where God's just near and his presence overwhelms you. I, I'm sure you will at some point. But that's not the primary work of the Spirit. The primary work of the Spirit is to point you to Jesus. But to be full of the Spirit. Now, I want to, as we, we just launch into these three chapters, be clear about when I, I talk about being full of the Spirit, it means two things. It means, one, you confess Jesus is Lord. And that, that, that's not just a confession with words, but a life lived. Right, that's the first sign the Holy Spirit is in you, is that Jesus is Lord. That you don't make decisions by yourself, without His guiding, without His leading, without His direction, without His advice and word and command. So one, if you're filled with the Spirit, Jesus is Lord. You confess that. It's a living confession. But secondly, and this is where we'll spend the next three weeks, you have spiritual gifts for the good of others. 
Right? Catch it. There's the two primary ways. You know you're full with the Spirit. Jesus is Lord, and you have spiritual gifts to give for the good of the church, for the good of others. Right? That's where Paul goes in verses 4 through 6 when he begins to unpack and begins to lean into what it means to have spiritual gifts. Here's what he says. He says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirits. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. When Paul begins to unpack spiritual gifts there in verses 4 through 7, he starts with who God is in and of himself, the Trinity. Right? Did you notice Paul walked through each person of the Godhead? In verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit, right? Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service but the same Lord. Lord being another word that Paul would use for Jesus throughout the New Testament. Even points back to verse 3, Jesus is Lord. And then verse 6, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. The word God there being the word Paul designated for the Father. That the reason Paul goes to the Trinity to begin to unpack what it means that you and I have spiritual gifts is that God is, is unique and different within himself, right? Three persons, yet one God. And that variety, that goodness of difference gets worked out into the life of our church by the way God gifts us as his church. Right? And so that's how we're led by the Spirit. Not being alone in a room with our Bible, oh, that's, that works. But primarily in the company of the church as we use our gifts for and with one another. That's where the Spirit comes alive and fills us to, to minister and to serve one another. In other words, for Christians, for us, the way we look at spirituality is that it's fundamentally others-centered. That I'm filled with the Spirit not primarily for individualistic experiences, but to serve and to give to the people around me. That's why I'm filled with the Spirit of God. And that's why Paul is going to spend three chapters unpacking this very complicated topic that we have a lot of unlearning to do when it comes to how we approach and think about God. And so as we, we, we launch into these weeks, I want to offer a definition of what a spiritual gift is. We worked at, the best we could do as a church, just to define it down to a sentence. What do we mean when we say spiritual gifts? Here's what we mean. A spiritual gift is a Holy Spirit-empowered ability freely given to the Christian for the purpose of serving others and building up the church for the common good of all. Now, that's purposefully broad. Because scriptures rarely give us a complete list of, of what the spiritual gifts are, as well as Paul never really defines exactly what he means when he says this term, spiritual gifts. That we have a few lists, like we have here in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, but those lists are very different depending on where they're at. What's interesting is there are moments when you find Paul listing things like administration and teaching, leadership, generosity as spiritual gifts. Right? And those things sound very ordinary to us. You don't, you don't need to be a Christian to, to have those things. And then in other moments, or next breath, he'll talk about Christians who heal another Christian or who have the gift of prophecy or tongues, that gifts that sound very extraordinary or unordinary to us. So what are, what is this, what is this spiritual gift? Right? Is it a natural talent? Is it a, a, a supernatural empowerment? What is, what is it? And I think the best way to describe this would be a spiritual gift. It may be something you've always had, even before you came to faith. But after you came to faith, your gift found a direction, a purpose, an empowerment behind it that it didn't have before. Or maybe that after you came to faith, you were given a gift that, God, that you never thought you had and God started using you in unique ways in ways you never thought possible. I'll explain both of those directions. I think either one can be true, right? One, it's something you naturally had, maybe that, that God puts a special empowerment behind it, or it's something that just 
God says, you're doing this. You've never done it before, but you're going to do this in my church. That, that, explain the first one. Um, a while back, I was, I was faced with a really agonizing decision. And, and I knew what the right decision was. I knew what the right thing, what God had made it very abundantly clear. This is the right thing to do. But the reality was the right thing to do was going was to create a lot of, a lot of pain. And so I was anxious. I was worried. And so I was sharing all of this with, with a friend of mine, laying out the possibilities, trying to think of a way to get around the really clear, hard path God was laying out before me, thinking maybe there's an easier way, and God just hasn't shown it. Let's go, I'm going to go this way. It's easier to go that way. And, and the reality was my, my friend, just, he looked me straight in the eye, and he said, Tim, don't play amateur providence. Now, in one sense, I already knew that. Right? I mean, I, I know that. I'm not going to try and take God's place. And yet, in another sense, I didn't know that. I was anxious. I was confused. I was worried. And God used that moment and that, that saying, that, that sentence, to completely wipe away my anxiety, my fear, my worry. And, and the reality is that, that was a moment where that person is wise, right? He shoots straight. He gets it. Probably always been a wise person who had lots of pithy sayings that, that have helped people throughout Time. So once it's that gift was probably always there, and yet the Spirit said, this moment, I'm going to use this, Tim, to remind you of truth that you cannot get, that you don't get by yourself, right? And it's not just me, my Bible, by myself, and God shows me what to do. He brings another Christian to say, Tim, right? It's a natural gift, and yet God uses it with a special empowerment. And that's a picture of what the spiritual gifts are. But let's not miss the forest for the trees. Let's, let's keep the big picture in mind. Right, the spiritual gift, it has two realities you and I can't miss. The one being, it's, it's not from you. It's from God. They're not ours. They're not something we've done, something we've earned. And no matter what gifts you have, they're not your own. The Spirit, the same Spirit who gives all of the gifts, has given you your gifts. And the presence of those gifts in your life should lead you to humility and service, not pride and arrogance. Your spiritual gift, it's not from you, it's from God. Only if God's empowering you to do it will it really, truly, deeply mean something in the lives of others. But secondly, it's not, it's not just from, not from you, it's also not just for you. Right? That we have the Spirit for others. That if, if you hear any verse this morning or take any verse in as we, we think through this series, it's verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You're given the Spirit for those around you to serve and give to them. And that's why Christianity is so unique about what it says about spirituality. That the answer to us is not to look within. Right? That God alone is the source of our gifts. If I look within, I'm looking at the wrong place. But it's not just that. It's not just that then I look out to God and I'm dependent only on Him. No, I'm also dependent on others who God will empower through His Spirit to serve and mature and help me. That we're dependent on others and others are dependent on us. That's the image Paul paints of what Christian spirituality is. That raises a question. How do we live it? Let's get practical. How do you know what your gifts are? Do you know where you're gifted? How can you begin to discern that? And Tim Keller has a really helpful framework here. Three things he says I, we're going to use throughout the series to help us think through maybe where, where might God be gifting you in your own life? He says three things. First, he says, look out. What are the needs in the community around you? Look out. And this is often our last step, isn't it? Right, we start with, what am I good at? What can I use? Um, what can I, can I be, what can I, that I love to do, can I use to be, to be a gift to the church? And that's, that's really important. 
And even as we've thought about starting this new church, that's the way I've wanted to start ministries, is where people gifted, let's go that direction instead of inventing stuff that no one's gifted to lead at. That's important stuff. But Christian spirituality, that if being full of the Holy Spirit is from God and for others, then my first concern is not what do I want to do, but what do the people around me need? Right? It's not that what you're good at is not important. It's that what, what's the, the church needs around you? What needs done in this community? And when you find out, just do it. Just try it. And maybe it's something you don't think you're good at or don't want to do. But, but if it's a need in the community, the Spirit maybe is using you to go in that direction. And to me, this is the starting place of spiritual gifts. And it's not because I'm trying to manipulate you into doing the work that no one else wants to do. Although that would be a really good way if I wanted to do that. But I don't. But it's also because you can, you can try those things. right? There's not a waiting line for the things no one wants to do. For the needs in the community. And one of the best ways to experience your spiritual gifts is by trying. Just going out and doing it. For me, one of the first things I, I realized I love to do was in sixth grade, in seventh, eighth grade, when our, our church started a, um, a high school worship service, a middle school worship service, I was the guy who loaded the sound up on the cart and tore it down each week, week after week after week. And I found I loved it. I loved serving behind this before and after. And now I'm doing it as a 32-year-old. I'm still setting up and tearing down church every week. And I never thought I'd love that, right? I never thought that'd be something I would enjoy doing. And yet, I just, I do, I love it. And there's lots of needs we have as a church. What are they? Jump in, do it, try it. Maybe you're good, maybe you're not. Maybe God will use you in a way you would never have expected. So first, look out. Second, look in. Now, what do you love to do? What do you feel most drawn to? And to help you with this, hopefully you got an email this week with a link to spiritual gifts inventory we have on our website. Now, if you didn't get that, we'd love to to resource that with you. And now, obviously, an online form or a test isn't going to dive deeply into how you're really gifted. It's just a conversation starter. It's to get you thinking and to get your mind going for what you love to do, what God might be drawing you to. It's just to get you started in looking in to see what God, what desires God may be giving you in order to serve his church. So look out, look in, and finally look around. The what are the people closest to you saying about what you're good at, what your gifting is? Maybe it's something you never noticed before. Maybe it terrifies you. Maybe you don't even enjoy it that much. But the people around you, they're affirming you. They're encouraging you. They're saying God really uses you in that. Of course, that also means we have to be open to our community, the church, telling us what we're gifted at and what we're not gifted at. And that's hard. Right? And yet true spirituality as Christians, if it's primarily others-centered, then what I should care most about is, is my gift being used for the good of others? Not, is my own desire or my own wants being lived into? But is what I'm really good at in contributing to the life of church, am I doing those things? Is God using me? Maybe in areas I don't want him to use me, but that's where he's chosen for whatever reason. Because if we're Christians, right, and we are, true spirituality is not an individualistic experience. It's joining a community. A community filled with the Spirit for and with one another. And that's where Christianity is so unique. That God has designed his church for us to be dependent on one another. That you need the gifts of those around you. And they need your gifts. That none of us can do this Christian life alone. And the Spirit is going to bring them into your life in order to serve and to love and encourage you. 
That's the irony to me, is that most of the moments when I felt God has most clearly spoken to me, it's been someone else speaking to me. It's not been me by myself. And I think that happens. I don't want to downplay that. And yet if I look at the most formative moments in my life as a Christian where I knew God's presence was near and speaking into my life, it was someone else who approached me. And I know I, I told the story in Olathe, so if you remember it, I apologize, but, but it's just such a good picture of, of where I want to leave us this morning. When I was in, in seminary um, a couple years ago, I was working two jobs, um, going to school full-time, um, just had a brand new baby, and, and obviously was married as well. And so I, I just had this season where I was convinced I was failing at, at all of those things, right? Not enough time to be a good husband. I was way, home way too little to, to care for my son. I felt like I wasn't doing good at either of my two jobs. In school, I felt like I was just behind constantly. And I just had this sense of guilt that God was angry with me, dissatisfied with me, that I had all these balls in the air. I wasn't doing any of them well. So one of my jobs was as a worship pastor um, at the church I went to, and, and we had a kind of a quarterly worship and prayer night. And so we finished, and, and of course, after any worship service, a pastor feels terrible about themselves. And that's what I've, I just felt like. I didn't do a good enough job. The music wasn't good enough. We could have done a better job. I wasn't prepared the way I should have been. And, and there was one song. I forgot to bring my sheet music, so I tried to, to do Be Thou My Vision from, from memory, and it was terrible. Um, wish there was video of that. No, I don't actually wish there was video of that. Um, and so I just, I felt awful. And this, this guy's name's John, um, came up to me at the end of the, the night and said, Tim, I'm, I've been praying for you during the service. And I know for some of you, this will test your limits of where you think spiritual gifts are. And I'm okay with that. I'm going to test your limits a little bit. Um, but he came up to me and he said, I was praying for you during the service. Um, and I felt God had a word for me to share with you in the scripture for you to hear. And I don't know, this may be totally irrelevant. This may not hit you at all. This may not mean anything to you. But I'm just, I just want to share this with you and, and see if this, this matters. And he looks at me and he says, the word that God wants you to hear tonight is kindness. That God wants to deal with you kindly. Not as some angry judge who's always unhappy with you, but he wants to deal with you in kindness. And he took me to Ephesians 2.7, which is where Paul is explaining why God sent Jesus to save all of us. Why he gave up his only son, that you and I might know him and live with him. And this is what... Paul says the reason you and I are saved is so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Right? And God used someone else to remind me that I'm not doing life alone. There's a God in heaven who wants to relate to me in kindness. And that's the beauty of spiritual gifts. It's not just you and your Bible and hoping God shows up. It's you and the Spirit in this church and people surrounding you to bring the presence of God into your life, right? That's the beauty of Christian spirituality. God is going to use other people to bring his presence into your life to remind you you're not doing life on your own. Because the Spirit points us back to Jesus, back to the gospel, the gospel we so easily forget, right? That we try to do life on our own. We lose sight of God's great love and grace and kindness towards us. And that's why we have to be a spirit-led church. Because the spirit will always lead us back to Jesus. And the people around you are the people who the spirit will empower to lead you and enable you to come back to Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are God who is present and active among us now. And even if we don't sense that presence, even if we feel distant from you or there's frustration or there's, there's distance, 
God, your promise to us is not that you'll be alive in our hearts, not just that you'll dwell within us, but that you'll dwell in community with us, your church. And so I pray as we gather, as we sing, your spirit would be real and near and true. And God, I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.